My name is Ben Beard, and I own Redcliffe Homes in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I'm searching for the top tips and tricks of the trade from experts in the construction industry. Welcome to the Ben Beard Show. Our guest today is Michael Braddock with the Braddock Group in Wilmington, North Carolina. Michael, welcome to the show today. Hi, Ben. Thanks for uh, allowing me to join your program. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about you and your business. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you got started in the construction industry. Yeah, absolutely. So my story goes back to around 2003, early 2004. Um, I originally was going to college. I originally was going to go to school to be a pharmacist, interestingly enough. Okay. Uh, but then I decided that uh, chemistry and uh, all the things that go along with it were not quite my strong suit. Uh, <laughs> so I, I decided to switch and go more the route of, of business. And I always enjoyed as a small ch small child, just seeing things, something from nothing turn into something. And I thought, maybe there's, there's something here for me as far as from an industry. So uh, a friend of mine said, well, maybe you should consider real estate. So my sophomore year of college, I decided to do what most sophomores that aren't sure what they're wanting to do is I decided to take a semester off. Well, that's <laughs> that semester off uh, 17 years later. <laughs> uh, so I took a semester off and decided to go pursue my real estate license. Um, and I was, I was 17 at the time and in North Carolina, um, you had to be 18 to get your license. So by the time that I finished my real estate um, pre-licensing courses, I, I turned 18. Uh, so I, I hold, hold on, I got to interrupt here. How were you a sophomore in college and and still only seventeen? So funny story. Because of the way my birthday falls, I um, started school when I was a little bit younger. So I was actually always the I was always the youngest in my class going through high school, and I was one of the last individuals in my class to get my driver's license. So my my peers were getting their driver's license the semester before going into summer. Mm -hmm. and, and I was getting my driver's license the semester after we started summer. So uh, I was okay. right on the cusp the way that the admissions program worked. And I was right on the cusp. So I was always generally six months to a year younger than, than most of my peers. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so and, and, and my, my timing there may be off a little bit. I graduated high school in 2002, got my real estate license in 2004. So I might have been closer to 18 at the time. But uh, it was right in that 17, 18 year old period of time. Yeah. So I took, took a semester off, took my pre-licensing class, enjoyed it. Um, and then the way North Carolina worked at that time, uh, you could then go and become a broker. So you can become a sales associate, or you could then take the broker class and become a full-fledged real estate broker. Um, so so I just, immediately after getting your license without immediately any after getting your license, experience. you did not have to have any industry experience or, or, or kind of period of time on your license at that time. That has since changed. But mm -hmm. at that time, you could literally go from real estate, we'll call 101 to real estate 201. I took my real estate brokers cl class. And what caused me to get into the new development world, new construction world was there was a gentleman in my class. And again, I was, you know, set, call it some, somewhere between 17, 18 and a half years old. Um, and there's a gentleman in my class that just carried himself extremely well, was very well put together, very polished. And uh, it was one of those individuals to where you, something on, on, on your brain says there's something there. Mm -hmm. uh, so at, during one of the breaks of class, I, uh, I walked up to him, introduced myself and said, excuse me, and I'll, I'll, I'll redact his name, but excuse me, um, you look like you're extremely successful. And he was at the time he was driving a brand new Range Rover. Um, at, at, I saw him out in the parking lot, said, mm -hmm. you look extremely successful. Just curious, what? is it in real estate that you do and what has you pursuing your real estate broker's license? He said, well, uh, I work for a real estate company and we do uh, development. And uh, he said, if you ever want to really do well in the real estate world, you need to sell dirt. And at the mm -hmm. time, again, still being very green, said, okay, sell dirt. I wonder what he means by that. And then at the time, his phone rang and he said, excuse me, I'm going to have to take this call, but let's follow up on this. So Finished class that day, classes where I think Tuesdays or Fridays or something like that. It was twice a week. Uh, so it was the earlier class in the week. And he comes back into the follow-up class and he says, I really appreciate the way that you came up to me. You introduced yourself, the way you carried yourself. Um, give this person a call. Here's her number. She's going to be expecting your, your phone call. So called called that individual. Uh, she said, absolutely. Let's get together. Um, this individual told me about you. 
it was almost an immediate interview, showed up for an interview, was given the position. And then during the conversation uh, of the of the position, uh, I said, yeah, this particular person, she he or he referred me here and, and told me I needed to be the one talking to you. And she says, oh, yeah, that particular person, he owns the place. <laughs> So he was extreme. So, so he, I went from, yeah, I work for a development group to he was the president CEO of the organization and his family was the family behind the development that was taking place. And, uh, for, for a little bit more context, it was one of, for about 15 consecutive years, it was the number one selling master plan community in Southeastern North Carolina. Wow. Uh, so, so I started as a sales associate, which was at that time a little bit more than a, a glorified uh, telemarketer. In today's language, they call them ISAs, uh, but I was uh, I was basically a, a, a telemarketer uh, mm-hmm. and just learned the business and was just able to sort of um, to one of both of our mentors kind of words that he always likes to use. I was able to ingratiate myself in the business, in the nomenclature, in the overall vernacular. Uh, and just learn the business. And I yeah. was responsible for just working the on-site agents database and then building rapport with individuals and then booking appointments. So it gave me the opportunity, although there wasn't the opportunity to go from a sales assistant to one of the on-site agents there, it gave me the opportunity to get my foot in the industry, specifically yeah. in the new development selling of lots, which is what he was referring to when he said sell dirt. Mm-hmm. And Word got out amongst the industry because it is very, the master plan community industry is pretty small, uh, relatively speaking. And he gave me the opportunity to really just get my foot in the industry. People started hearing about what I was doing as far as performing. So a vice president of sales and operations for another um, development organization that had multiple master plan communities reached out to me. She set up an interview with me and they had a, a true sales assistant transition to sales agent program. Mm-hmm. So, so you went from instead of just calling the database and working with people, you actually would work hand in hand with the agent, go out on tours or on property presentations with the agent. You would learn uh, the entire kind of front end presentation. You would learn the process through uh, being outside the kind of the property preview or property tour. Uh, and then also the contract process and the negotiation process and just how to how to handle clients and deal with with clients to help fulfill their needs. But also there's a pathway to get you from from A to Z uh, yeah. in sort of the proverbial sales funnel. Um, so you're you're selling was, lots. Are you selling to builders? Are you selling to individual homeowners? So so in this case, it was it was to a retail lot buyer. So it was to okay. to a consumer. Uh, so it was more of a developer to consumer role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the builders would work directly with the developer. And then our role was to then either do pre-sales for the builder or to sell builder speculative inventory uh, showcase homes. Um, okay. So you're representing both the developer and the builder. That, that is correct. The, cool. the, the way that it was, the way that the, a lot of these master plan communities are structured, the real estate firm is solely owned by the development group. And then the builders that build with inside of those communities, they're required to list with the developer's firm. Okay. So I was essentially a seller's agent for the developer lots and a seller's agent for the builder-owned inventory. Okay, interesting. So I've heard of that model in, in other markets. I, I think Boise, Idaho was the first place where I, where I heard about that kind of model where the developer is, the, is really the sales force. Yeah, it's instead of instead of hiring a third party or instead of the developer, uh, and, and we'll get to it a little bit as far as kind of the trends that we're seeing and I'm seeing here on the East Coast, but uh, and a lot of these master plan communities, the developer has a centralized sales and marketing operation, and then the uh, builder would be they would they would a part of the builder agreement, the builder would then list their property with that firm and agency. So they were each builder is required to have a model home. Mm-hmm. And except instead of them staffing their own model home, the developer is going to staff the model home. Well, in, in many cases you would have, so you would have in my role, for example, you would have myself as a, or other individuals as the on-site centralized sales team through a sales center or a welcome center. And mm-hmm. then the builder would have someone that would maybe be on salary. That would be the builder rep to answer any questions to do 
sites okay. to do selections, to do AR architecture review committee submittals, all of those types of things. So, so there mm -hmm. really would be a relationship between the on-site agent and the builder rep, but all sales went through that on-site sales organization and operation. Gotcha. Um, so, so during that, that process of going through that training program, it was about a, um, it was typically about a 12 month period of time that you would have to go through from the time that you became a sales assistant to the time you became an on-site agent. I did that in eight months. Um, so I, I went through that program uh, and then became one of the top performers for that particular organization. And then the top performer through, for the entire company, because this development company had five residential master plan communities going on at, at kind of the peak of when, when I, I departed. Uh, he left and went to go work as a VP for a project or actually two projects in Eastern Tennessee. And he was, he was, I would, at, so at the time now I'm probably about 19. Um, and then, and he was, he was 60. So he was three, three X my age. Yeah. And he just took, took a liking to me and I, I took a liking to him and I, I sort of respected his, his approach and he was the top person in the company. So what better person to kind of look up towards? Yeah. And he, he left, became a VP for uh, two, two communities uh, in Eastern Tennessee and recruited me to go out. So I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee to work a brand new project. Um, it was a, about a, about a thousand acre project, maybe 800,000 acres, um, had a Lee Trevino design golf course that was being constructed. It had a marina on a lake. Um, so I, I got there and worked there and it was myself and four other on-site agents, and we worked there, uh, and we started selling through. But what I, one of the things that I noticed while I was there is that in eastern North Carolina, you typically get the northeastern United States moving south. So mm -hmm. the natural southern transition is from the mid-Atlantic, like Virginia, Maryland, D.C. metro area, and then New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, just taking I-95 south, and then they would land somewhere North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, or Florida. And for many, many years, Florida was the place to be. But then North mm -hmm. Carolina became a place to where people in Florida would move halfway back and North Carolina was a halfway point. So that way they could be halfway back to the Northeast. Um, as, 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 you know, as you know, when, when working with different consumers, depending upon where they're moving from, their, um, their overall decision-making is at a different pace. So what I noticed is that folks from the Northeast, they made a much quicker decision because that is the world in which they lived. It was a very fast-paced environment. So they had to make decisions quickly and they, were, they knew what they wanted. Um, when I moved to Eastern Tennessee, the general part of the country where individuals were moving from uh, were moving from more of, more of a Midwestern area. So Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, uh, and they were moving to Eastern Tennessee and they were uh, not as familiar with Tennessee. Uh, so that the process just took a little bit longer process um, to mm -hmm. familiarize them with the city, familiarize them with the community concept, and then also to help them make the decision to move forward. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just, a, it was just a little bit different process. So the sales cycle was a much longer, longer sales cycle. To continue on that vein, and I, I kind of make it brief, but that individual ended up leaving and went to Texas and I decided to stay in Eastern Tennessee. And then at that point in time, they made me the principal broker. So I was, this was in 2006, or excuse me, 2006. I was about to say 2016. It was in 2006. Okay. Um, so at that time I would have been, I'm 36, soon to be 37 now. So 15 years ago, I would have been, what was that about 20? 20, 21-ish. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to go work. So they asked me to be the principal broker and be responsible for all of the things like the trust accounts to be in compliance, uh, to make sure that all of the, my other associates were, were in compliance with the Tennessee Real Estate Commission, things like that. And they also asked me to work another community that they had in Knoxville, Tennessee. So for a period of time, I was floating back and forth between Chattanooga and Knoxville working a brand new project in Chattanooga and then a more established project with all of the amenities in place uh, there. Uh, that led me to the summer. And this is all at 21 years old. Crazy, right? Okay. Uh, so that led me to the summer of 2007. And this gentleman came back and we stayed in contact, but he came back to the East, East Coast and he said, hey, I'm working this exciting project, this new development, uh, very reputable developers that are behind it. Um, they, there was a private equity group out of 
I think it was out of New York, might have been Pennsylvania, but I think it was New York uh, behind it, funding it. He said, "This we have we have the funding behind us, we have the developer reputation, and then the developers had built some of the 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 top selling communities in the greater Atlanta metro area um, during 2000, 2002, three, four, five. Um, so this was the summer of 07. So I made the move to a very, very, very small town um, just east of Atlanta, Georgia. It was about 45 minutes east of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in a little community uh, near a lake called Lake Oconee. Well, there's also uh, I, I, an award-winning community that's been established for quite some time that has a Ritz-Carlton, multiple golf courses. Uh, it's called Reynolds Community or Reynolds, Reynolds Club right on Lake Oconee. So the thought process was there was that since there was that that community had already created some name recognition for the lake, and there were also people that were moving out of their 10,000 square foot, 12,000 square foot homes on the lake, they were just aging out and they wanted to move mm -hmm. into something maybe 2,800 to 3,000, 3,500, the, the developers were going to capitalize on that. Okay. So infrastructure work went in, all of the horizontal wet and dry infrastructure went in, lots were graded, they were staked. And then Lehman collapsed. So Lehman, Lehman, oh. so Lehman collapsed. So first it was Bear Stearns, then Lehman collapsed, and the the amount of capital that had already been um, kind of expent on those on that development, uh, the developers and the private equity group basically said, "Sorry, but we cannot uh, put our investors at risk because." The, the investment group had some sort of tie, some sort of connection to either uh, either a public pension fund, whether it be for for um, for teachers or firefighters or police or something like that, and they were they were looking to create the returns that way. And mm -hmm. they said, "We just have to pull our horns in. We we do not know what the future holds." So that ended up being the fall. That that ended up being go the fall of oh eight going into oh nine and then they just kind of they, they kind of funded the project but not exponentially funded and then by the summer of of oh nine we could sort of see the proverbial writing on the wall that um yeah. project was just going to be kind of shelved indefinitely so i i departed and in, in the fall of oh nine moved back to the wilmington area um actually funny story for the for the viewers so it's not always sunshine and rainbows I actually ended up having to move back in with my parents <laughs> uh, in, in the fall of 2009. And I started, um, I almost came full circle. So I started at a master plan community in Eastern North Carolina um, that was just kind of getting off the ground. They started in the fall of 06, kicked off the fall of 07. So they were about three years into development. Mm -hmm. And I, I called on a, a previous contact that I made at the very first place that I got into the business. And um, he and I just continued a you know cordial relationship over the years, and he said absolutely let's let's talk. So uh, over the course of probably a two two month period of time from October to January, we stayed in communication. Uh, officially brought me on board in January of 2010 as a sales assistant. So I went from being a top performing agent and yeah. an agent that was running an office as the principal broker. Uh, an agent that then went to another community to get it started and launched with a core team of three other agents to full circle back to a sales agent. Um, so, wow. so that process was was kind of interesting, but but you know, Ben, when I looked at it from the standpoint, and I said, "This is an opportunity to grow. This is an opportunity to to rebuild," and that's exactly what I did. Um, yeah. I, I said, "You know, I'm going to be." Uh, Grant talks about it a lot. Be good at where you're at. Whether you mm -hmm. love it or you don't, learn to love it and um, and be good at it. And then it'll make way for you and it'll make room for you. And that's exactly what I did. I just said, you know what? Um, and to add a little bit of color to it, Ben, mm -hmm. the two agents that I was an assistant for, I had worked as their peer as an agent when I was at <laughs> the community before I moved to Tennessee. Wow. Um, so it was one of those types of things, and I, I, I don't know what your kind of your audience base is, but I, 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 I'm a person of faith, and I think it was one of those kind of God humbling experiences to where yeah. it kind of came full circle of, okay, let's see how bad you really want it, because it was, it was now you're working for someone else that you were working with and outselling when yeah. I was in the places that we were working with. Um, 
So, so I just said, you know what, I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to perform. And that's exactly what happened. I put my head down and performed uh, to the point to where, and this is where it gets interesting, to the point to where the people that I was working directly for started advocating for me to become an agent. Wow. And so I became an agent. I was brought on uh, from an assistant as an agent, probably 10 months, maybe 11 months later. So that would have been early uh, late 2010, early 2011, kind of gets foggy in there, but somewhere around that period of time. And I'd been an agent in that community ever since, um, and have since sold significant amounts of property, all new construction. And that business model, like we were talking about earlier, was develop our own lots, mm-hmm. builder speculative inventory, builder pre-sales. Uh, and then also with selling developer own lots, uh, you were a part of the consultant process and sort of the handholding process when clients that purchased a lot or a home site would then meet with the builder. So you were kind of following them through that whole process, not just here's a lot, find a builder, see you later type of a thing. Yeah. Um, so during that period of time, probably sold on average 20 million a year, something like that. Some of my earlier years weren't as much because I was rebuilding a, a, a client database and building mm-hmm. building momentum. But uh, through my period of time there, sold over $100 million with the real estate there, um, wow. was, the, uh, was their number one agent in 2015, 2017, 2018, 2019. Um, and then in the years that I didn't hit it, which were 16 and 2020, I was the second that was number two. Um, And then that brings me to where I am today. In August of this year, so a month ago, I officially resigned. Um, At the time of my resignation, uh, which I I informed uh, kind of our director of sales back in May at the time of my resignation, I was leading the pack. Uh, At the time that I left, I think I was maybe number two, uh, number two, number three, or tied at number two when I officially departed. but I was on pace to do 55, 60 transactions. I think when I left, I had, had I was at 39 or something like that. Um, yeah. So that brings me to, to and, and it was a great, you know, it was a very great departure. We have a great relationship. It was one of those things to where um, mutual respect and, and that's the biggest thing, never burn a bridge, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. industry is just too small. And even if the industry is huge, you just never burn a bridge. Uh, because you just never know where that individual or individuals are going to to be in the future. Um, And the other thing one of my mentors taught me was you also never treat someone that you appear to be uh, subservient or subordinate to you um, without respect, because you never know where they're going to be in 10 years. Yeah, um, they may end up being the key relationship that you need, but because if you were a jerk to them, because you felt like you were more important than they were, um, you know, everyone's on this, everyone's on their own race and journey up, kind of on the proverbial ladder. And yet, just because they may be a couple of rungs below you at one point in time, they may end up being three or four rungs above. Yeah. Uh, so, that, so from that standpoint, and I only say that from the standpoint of your listeners that treat everyone with respect. Uh, because you just never know where that connection may, may end up or where, where the future past may lead you. Yeah. Uh, You never know when when those ladders might cross again. That's exactly right. You don't have to like everyone, but you have to at least be respectful. Uh, because you know, people remember that people remember how you treated them and they're like, Oh, well, this person thought I was just, you know, sweeping up job sites. So they didn't have to treat me with respect. Meanwhile, that person sweeping a job site might be thinking, okay, I want to be a project manager or I'm. I want to be a partner in a construction company or whatever it may be, right? They're just at that place in their life to where they're just getting started. Uh, so, so kind of coming back to the starting of this company. So it's called the Braddock Group, um, as you had mentioned uh, at the onset. Yeah. And it really started sort of the genesis of it was uh, my wife is in commercial real estate, whom I think you've, you've met at one of the, the Cardone conferences. And she's a commercial real estate and she actually, we, how we met, she was the uh, commercial rep for the developer of the project that I worked at for uh, the better part of 11 years in, in Eastern North Carolina. She did the sales, the leasing, the project management. uh, She helped with tenant upfits and she also uh, did the overall um, kind of property management of of that as well. And we met there. And then the, 
summer of 2017, we had our daughter uh, and my wife decided we made a decision as a family for her not to go back to work, uh, mm -hmm. but to spend really those kind of those crucial months and crucial years early on with, with our daughter. But my wife, after about seven, eight, nine months, she absolutely loved being with her daughter, but she wanted the, the adult business interaction. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, so I just said, well, why don't you, why don't you do your own thing? So that's really where the genesis of the Braddock group started. It started out as a commercial firm and she would work with builders, developers, clients that were looking on the commercial world. And because of her, her breadth of knowledge, uh, she could help through the entitlement process. She understood how to go through the entitlement process. She understood how to get text amendments done with, with towns and planning boards. She also understood she wasn't just a broker that just said, here's a contract. Here's your, here's what the terms look like. Thank you so much for doing business. She understood how the tenant upfit process work, the project management process work. Yeah. Um, and that's really made her unique in the business. So she's not, she's not a transactional oriented individual. It's much more of a relationship and a, and a strategic partner as opposed mm -hmm. to just a broker looking for the transaction. Yeah. Um, and I started seeing what she was doing and she's been working on some pretty exciting things. Unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to discuss, but she's been working on some pretty exciting things and seeing her flourish. And then also seeing kind of where I was to where I really enjoyed what I was, but I wasn't satisfied or fulfilled. I felt there's more in my, my gas tank and I'm, I'm only using, I know we're on video, but I'm only using this much. I'm only using yeah. a, a small, small amount. And, and, and it was one of those things to where I saw, felt myself becoming complacent, felt myself not growing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, I was just sort of pushing, pushing the wheel, keeping the momentum going, but I wasn't, nothing was really charging me up, getting me excited. So I, I made the decision really mentally, I think in the fall of, of, of 2020, um, 2020 really caused me to readjust some priorities and, and yep. look at, um, you know, look at some things. And I know you and I initially connected in 2020 via, um, I think the emergency response thing, right? Um, uh, that that Brandon was doing, if I'm not not mistaken, I I can't remember exactly how we met. I know we met somehow in the Cardone universe. Yeah, it was I, it was it was sometime last year. I can't. It was on. It was it was somewhere. You're right. It was somewhere in the Cardone universe, that world. And and I started looking at things and started really taking a holistic approach to everything. And I said, you know, if if not if not now, then when? If not who? If not me, then who? Right. Yeah. Uh, and I started seeing some gaps in the market and said, I can do this. Um, so I made, I, I kind of mentally made the decision in the late part of 2020, had a conversation fully transparent, um, with my, my director of sales and VP of sales, uh, at the time. And, uh, I said, I'm, I'm considering branching out doing my own thing. Um, and, and he said, well, well, congratulations. That's exciting. Um, can, can you give me a, a runway or some window to prepare for your departure? So I said, sure, absolutely. So, um, so long story short, that runway ended end of July, early part of August. And I officially stepped out, uh, to, to the Braddock group or TBG is what we call it. Um, mm -hmm. in, in August, mid August of, of this year. So a month ago, and my role there as a co-founder now, she's brought me on as a co-founder. So I report to my wife, she's my boss. There you go. Um, so she, she was already. That, let's be honest. That's right. I mean, <laughs> let's let's be honest, right? She was already my boss. Now she's my officially my boss on a business title card uh, and on a business card. Yeah. Uh, so I stepped over, and my whole goal and role is to build out residential and the new development sales and marketing arm of the company. Okay. Um, but looking at it from my history and background of working with developers and builders. I, I bring a, a skill set that a lot of real estate agents just uh, unfortunately just don't don't offer, don't care, don't care to learn, et cetera, um, which is a value add to builders because I understand the vernacular, I understand the building process, I understand the issues that come up as well. Um, yeah. you know, talk about issues. I, I know you and I could probably talk for for hours about just the supply chain issues that happened last year and that are continuing to happen. Yeah. And being able to understand where the builder's head is, I can communicate that to the consumer in a manner to where they don't feel like they're just being told one thing and just to be told one thing that here's really what's happening and, and yeah. builders can appreciate that and, and the customers have been able to appreciate that. So 
my role is to build out the residential arm. So we're going to build out a residential brokerage to just do buying and selling of, of pre-owned homes. But really my focus is to build out um, this new development, new sales and marketing arm to work with builders of, of vertical product. So multi-story vertical product, mm-hmm. uh, as well as horizontal product that they're building in small subdivisions or even larger master plan communities to really work with the builders, be a strategic for the builders, not just a for hire agent, but yeah. a strategic partnership to where we bring the sales, the marketing, the training. Um, if, if they're looking at a raw piece of land, we can work through the entitlement process. I, I was fortunate to serve as the vice chair and then the chairman for the economic Co- development committee of our local town, which is one of the top five fastest growing towns in the state of North Carolina. And I was on that board for two terms. One is, one is vice chair and then most recently as, as chair. Um, and then I'm on various other boards that are with other key business leaders in the area. So just connecting the dots through there with the relationships that I've been able to cultivate over the past decade saying, here's how we can navigate through this process. Instead of this, let's do that because that will cause us an immediate approval in TRC and during the planning board that the other would cause us to have for them to create a continuance. So those different types of things. So that's really where the value add is. Um, it, it is in its infancy. So we are we're sort of the little engine that could right now. Um, you know, my wife's commercial side of the business is rapidly expanding, but the residential new development side is, for all intents and purposes, is only a month old. Yeah, um, we're we're in the process of getting our, our website together. We have a, a, a soft launch date of about thirty to forty five days from now. So by the end of October, um, and then our goal is to onboard correctly um the the right team members because culture is going to be huge for us it's something that mm-hmm. uh we both feel that there's also a gap in the market to create the right type of culture truly trained agents they don't have to be seasoned as far as years in the business in some cases i'd almost prefer new agents because you can bring them into the product group tbg way um yeah. and, and really build them up right set them up for success um, to, uh, to, to be successful. And, and we, we view, we view our cut, our clients, like our builders, developer clients, like clients, we view the consumer as a client, but we also view our agents and team members as clients, because yeah. if the team is treated correctly and it's the right culture, then they will treat the customers correctly. And then it'll be a, a win-win process for everyone. doesn't, doesn't have to be a zero sum game. Absolutely. That's awesome. So that was, you know, that, that, that was kind of me in a, in a nutshell. Um, what, what questions do you have or anything that, that may add value to your listeners? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I love hearing your, your story. You know, you've been able to be so successful in the, uh, in the sales arena, but still involved in the construction industry. Mm-hmm. So how do you see the industry changing over the next 10, 15 years of the real estate and, and general development and, and new home construction? That's, that's a great question. So I, I alluded to it very, very briefly earlier. Um, what I have started to see is that you're starting to see in some of these tertiary secondary markets, which is my primary market, um, you're starting to see a, a significant push for the large regionals and the nationals to start moving in. Um, I'm not sure what you've seen in, in sort of in your market, but over the past 12 to 13 months, it seems like, and this is sort of anecdotal, but it's also real data, but the, the real data is showing that the, the nationals have started to truly make a footprint in our local market. And the anecdotal is I'm hearing the same thing from a lot of my other contemporaries that are outside of our market and in other similar size markets that um, they're really making a push to, to enter the market. So from that standpoint, on the sales side of the role, that's evolving a little bit as well because a lot of these the the, the nationals have their own systems processes and sale on-site sales team yeah uh, so that's that's kind of what i'm seeing on the sales side of it on the actual construction piece um you're seeing the way in which the builders that i've been working with are adjusting how they sell their product uh, you're starting to see what used to be 75 80 percent pre-sale mm-hmm. and 25 percent spec it's flipping it's flipping the other way. Um, builders are 60, 70% spec and maybe 30% pre-sale. And a couple, couple of reasons for that. One is client and customer expectation. 
um, because if a customer comes into a showroom and makes selections and then all of a sudden um, it goes to the field and then the manufacturer says, sorry, we're seven weeks backlogged on this particular selection. It just yeah. creates a chain reaction uh, and it delays the home and the homeowner's not happy about it. The builder's not happy about it because they're, you know, their, their carry costs on their line of credit is still eating up. Yeah. Um, and it just creates just this bottleneck chain reaction. I mean, perfect example for our market. Um, some of the builders were seeing 22 week delays in windows. Wow. So as you know, as a builder, you can only get the home to so far without windows. Yeah. Uh, so you would see homes with Tyvek wrap and then plywood nailed over the Tyvek Mm-hmm. where the windows would be. So they wouldn't cut the windows out. They'd leave it wrapped. And then they put plywood over that. So that way they could at least do all the, the, uh, you know, the MEPs, your mechanicals, the, the plumbing, yeah. electrical, and, and uh, HVAC, um, and then get it to a point to where they could insulate it and potentially sheetrock it. So that way they weren't losing, losing the, yeah. the ground of waiting for the windows. Then when the windows would show up, then they would sheetrock around the windows and then they would put the siding up. Yeah, uh, and then then they would continue to move forward. So the builders have shifted to uh, speculative. So they're not even releasing the homes for sale until after sheetrock and cabinets are in. Yeah. So they can they can do two things. They can stay on time, and they mm-hmm. can also have a realistic number as what their all in budgetary number is going to be for yep. the cost of that house, um, because everything's been so volatile the past twelve months. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just at a at a builder conference recently with a bunch of uh, builders from all over the country, and and especially there in the South area, and builders were just begging for windows. Yeah, uh, S- Steve Alloy with Stanley Martin Homes, uh, big regional, be- becoming more of a national player. Um, it was spoke a couple of times, and every time I talked to him throughout the weekend, he was mentioning, uh, "Do you have a lead on windows? Where can I get windows?" Yeah. I need windows. Yeah. I, I yeah. talked to another guy that's building in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and and he was said they've got homes closing in two weeks with without windows yet. And they're, sure. they're having to drive a pickup truck to the manufacturer's warehouse and physically pick up windows as they're coming off the line and bring them down to, to Albuquerque and install them so they can button up the windows and, and close these homes in two weeks. It's, it's amazing. So, so my wife and I just flew in, we, we flew back from Florida and um, when we were coming back, we were able to fly over the, I'm almost sure it was Savannah, not Charleston, but the port of Savannah. And you could see just at least half a dozen tankers or, or, or carriers, you know, cargo ships, container ships sitting out there. And it's just the whole supply chain has been disrupted. All of yeah. the excess inventory has been absorbed. And then with the you know with the with the shutdowns or limited staffing, the the production facilities just cannot keep up with demand. It's yeah. just un, un, unbelievable. So you know I think that's gonna I, you know you're much more into it than I am, but but from every contact that I've had, that's that's going to be something that's going to still continue for the months to come. Yeah. Um, until until overall supply chain and production, not just on builder related goods, but even consumer goods. Um, yeah. Everything is just trying to get caught up. Um, I, I was in a meeting earlier this week with someone in that world, supply chain world, and you know some of their estimates were we're, we're going to be dealing with this going into 2022, um, just to try to try to get back to some sense of normalcy. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, at this conference, Ali Wolf, the chief uh, economist for Zonda, and uh, I can't remember her name. I think the second in command economist at the NHB both were predicting a 12 to eight, 18 months that we'll be dealing with supply chain issues. Yeah. So it's, that, yeah, it's not going away anytime really soon. Yeah, that that just that just corroborates what this individual in the in the supply chain world shared with me. He said, you know, 2022 is still going to be working through those. You're going to be working through it. So, um, but but there's all, with with challenges, as you know, there's always opportunity, and that's you know, Absolutely. there's 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 definitely opportunity. And like you said, the the folks, I think it's Stanley Martin. They're actually making a play to move into our marketplace. Um, okay. They, uh, but people, you know, there's opportunities if they can find where, where the, the windows are in this case, the windows are, they'll send a truck and go get them to make it work. 
um, yep. or, and, you know, some builders, I don't, I'm not sure as many now, but early on in this thing, some of the builders were just buying, uh, buying as much as they could and putting it into a mini storage facility and just, just so that way they could at least just have product on hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's an interesting world right now. For, for sure. Um, that, so that's one thing. I think the other thing is, is the consumer mindset you talked about over the, the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the consumer is going to change. So my, my predominant consumer is, is the baby boomer demographic because I've worked in age targeted, not necessarily 55 plus exclusive, but age targeted neighborhoods. There's, there's another, there's probably another 10 years, another good decade of that buyer profile that, you know, there's 78 million of them and 10,000 a day are retiring, but you're starting to see the emergence of the apartment uh, renter that has during COVID has been pushed out of the apartment and said, we need more space. Um, mm-hmm. And they've moved out of cities and they moved into more suburban secondary markets. Uh, the Zoom boom, which is, has occurred. Um, it'll be interesting to see what that really looks like. Um, some, of the, some of the talking heads are saying that work from home is here to stay forever. Uh, yeah. And then some of the talking heads are saying, yeah, the human interaction and connection um, people still want that. And, and I can speak to that. We just signed a lease in a, uh, a kind of a co-working common working space and mm-hmm. they're 90% full because people yeah. want the ability to socially interact. Uh, even if they're not together, just seeing other people, um, and it's their private offices. But mm-hmm. seeing other people, when you walk by and you see, look into their glass office and you see other people, there's something to, you know, and, and, I, and I know I can speak from when I talk to my various vendors, perspective team members, yeah. we get so much more accomplished when we're in person doing things on a whiteboard or having a meeting as opposed to, uh, you know, doing it, doing it via Zoom. But, but Zoom's here to stay, but I, and I think there's a place for it, but I don't know that it's going to be 100%. So I think you're going to see people's priorities adjust with what they're looking for in homes. Um, yeah. The, uh, there, there's there's going to be that element of the population that's going to want the ability to work from home and have a dedicated office space, a dedicated home gym, um, more square footage. Interest rates have driven the, the size of homes up because you can get more get more home with the lower interest rates. Yeah. Um, so people are moving out to, to more secondary markets like we were talking about earlier. You, you use that term a couple of times for for somebody that might not know. How do you define a say a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary market? Yeah, absolutely. So I would consider a primary um, if, they, if if there's a major league sports team, professional sports team of any kind. So NBA, MLB, NFL, NHL, uh, or soccer. That to me mm-hmm. is more primary. Um, okay. A secondary would be something that is large enough to be a metropolitan city, um, but not quite professional sports team. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would, I would call, I would kind of consider something like an Orlando, even though they have the magic, I would consider that maybe more of a secondary, whereas Miami would be a primary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like a tertiary would be a place like Sarasota, you know? Yeah. Um, so in North Carolina, primary would be Raleigh, Charlotte. Um, secondary would be Asheville. Um, and then Wilmington is sort of on that cusp of tertiary. We're sort of a third tier because, mm-hmm. uh, overall metro area is quarter of a million people. Uh, so we're kind of a tertiary, but we're quickly becoming, um, upper tertiary into almost secondary, secondary market. So I don't yeah. know if that, you know, helps, helps the listeners on that, but, uh, that's, that's my viewpoint on primary, secondary and tertiary. Okay. So primary is going to be your, your cities. Pretty much everybody knows. Mm-hmm. secondary you might have heard of it it's kind of the, the other big cities in the states my wife and i were just talking about that the other day how there's she's like there's only uh couple, i don't even remember what state we were talking about she's like there's only i only know of two cities in that state and i'm like well yeah but a you've never been there and b think about even the state we live in there's there's three main cities in new mexico there's albuquerque las cruces and, and santa fe and most people don't even know las cruces even though we're the second biggest metro area yeah. But everybody knows Albuquerque, Santa Fe. That's right. I'm one of those people. Guilty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, so I don't know if that answers your question a little bit about the, the 10 years. Um, yeah. But uh, it, and the other piece of it, I think there's definitely going to be 
you're starting to see differences with the way stormwater management is maintained as far as the neighborhood stormwater management mm -hmm. control. What's really an interesting trend, and I would actually kind of be curious to get your take on it, Ben, the BTR uh, segment of the market, build to rent. Um, yeah. it, that part of the market has really emerged over the past really five years, but you've seen a lot of buzz over the past 24 months. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's something I've been watching since I started my business. And I, in fact, when I first heard about it, I was like, dude, that is genius. If I can go pre-sell 30, 40 homes, I mean, mm -hmm. that makes my job so much easier. And and how much cost can I reduce by you know, not paying a, a sales agent or a buyer's agent on every individual deal, but just on, a, on an overall deal? Um, so I, I went and looked at uh, attracting some of those institutional investors to our market, mm -hmm. but being a, a tertiary market, it's tough to get them to come, you know, look at, look at these outside markets. Uh, mm -hmm. I think more and more it's going to open up um, and, and looking, you know, but if you can get to, I've, I've started to look to the El Paso market, which is kind of becoming the more of a secondary type market. Um, it's getting a little bigger. It's cl coming in uh, uh, close to a million people now. And, and I've had people tell me even recently that, yeah, El Paso's more attractive. Las Cruces, not so much, uh, just because of the size of the, you know, and, and there's just certain economies of scale that you get and, and more security for the investor when you have a larger market, you know, larger market so tends to feed, continue to feed its own growth as opposed to a smaller market that, Maybe independent. Uh, it may be dependent on one specific industry or one specific company that will grow. That's, so, how big is how big is your your kind of your market? So, Las, <clears throat> excuse me, Las Cruces by itself is about hundred thousand people. There's okay. another hundred thousand in the county surrounding. Okay, so we're slightly larger in size. So, yeah, you're we're just starting to see, um, and I think the reason why you're seeing it with in, in Wilmington area. We're just starting to see some smaller 20 home communities, 30 home kind of infill communities that are all that are being BTR, um, not necessarily institutional capital. It's more local angel investors, local mm -hmm. private capital that putting small funds together, things like that. But then they're selling them to, to, to a little bit larger. I wouldn't necessarily say publicly traded funds, but they're selling them a little bit larger private equity groups um, yeah. once they kind of create an assemblage of, of multiple projects. But I think part of that is Wilmington's really started to become on the national radar from the various moving data, movie company data, as U-Haul and I think United Van Lines, um, mm -hmm. on a percentage base, not necessarily the most amount of people, but on a percentage base, Wilmington, North Carolina was the number one most moved to area in 2020 on a percentage percentage oh. base. Um, and that's when you get national attention like that, capital starts to, to look at it and say, what's what's going on in this this market here? Mm -hmm. um, well, and that, that whole coastal North Carolina area is just blowing up from everything I've heard and read over the last several years. It is. Over the, uh, over the past 10, really over the past five years, you've started to see the downtown part of Wilmington. It's a historic city. So you started to see the downtown have a, a revitalization uh, to it. Um, they, you know, I'm not going to use the G word because the people don't, a lot of times people don't like the G word. Uh, so it's seen a revitalization and rejuvenation of, of downtown. Um, you've also started to see some of the outlier markets, um, kind of North of Wilmington, South of Wilmington, just because that's where more available land is. You're starting to see some of these larger groups yeah. acquire those properties, um, for that reason. But but what's happening is the cost of construction, the, the median price home in the market's now mid 300s, um, whereas the salaries are mid 30,000. Those yeah. numbers don't add up. Yeah. Um, so, so what's really driving the home prices here is the in migration from other areas, like we talked about earlier. Oh, four hundred thousand dollar, seventeen hundred square foot home. That's a bargain. Oh, yeah. Super cheap when you're used to a ridiculous price walk up in New York. That's exactly right. Oh, I, you know, I'm moving from a 65 year old multi story house that I could sell for $650,000 and I can buy a brand new 1800 square foot house all on one level for 400,000. Sign me up. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's part of it. So, and then the other yeah. thing is you're, you're starting the rents are even pushing up to a dollar and a quarter, a dollar and a half foot. So, you know, a thousand square foot apartments running for 15, $1,600 a month. Um, so you're starting to see that. 
Um, so people are looking at if they can get a little bit further away from the city, and that's where some of these BTRs are going in, um, they're going 30 minutes away from the city. You could get $1,500, $1,700 a month for a house instead of for a one or two bedroom apartment. Yeah. Um, so so starting, starting to see that. It was interesting speaking of the of the build to rent trend. I heard it defined differently. There was the the BTR build to rent is kind of more of a whole community dedicated exclusively to rental, may or may not have some amenities, you know, a clubhouse or or what have you, versus SFR single family rentals that are just, you know, a smaller investor coming and buying two or three or ten homes. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and distinguishing that difference was like, oh, okay. So we, cause we've definitely done that. We've had a lot of investor clients come pick up, you know, one to four houses at a time um, over the, over the period of a year or two. And, and so that we've been successful with that, but, but the uh, build to rent is something that's, it's, it's a, that's a whole different beast. I mean, that's, that's taking it to a lot more uh, kind of professional level. It's kind of interesting. 100%. It's, it's taking like a garden low to mid-rise apartment complex with the same level of amenities and then just spreading it out over a little bit more acreage for single family homes and everything. It's all run through a a central office, management office. The amenities are there. Sometimes they're gated and every, like you said, every single house in there was built solely as a rental and is being rented out. So it is a full rental community, just all single family homes. It's certainly an interesting trend. And I can see why, you know, you see two different, you see two different cohorts, right? You see the, you see the, the millennial group that we don't want to own anything. We want to rent everything, including our cars. We'll just do Uber or Toro or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you're seeing the boomer generation as well that are, that are saying, maybe we don't, it's a smaller percentage, but maybe we don't want to own another home. We've owned a home for 35 years and, you know, kind of pre- pre-COVID, maybe we just want to have a place that's a beautiful home. We use it as our, our um, home base and then we travel the world and let somebody else deal with the maintenance of it. And I think, you know, everything's of course starting to reopen back up. So that that mentality of still having a place to just use as home base and then travel around the world, it's to, that kind of thought process is coming back again. Uh, but that's, it's interesting from, from those two perspectives of, of who the demographics are that are looking at that BTR stuff. You just na- it makes sense. You naturally, when you start a family, you know, I'm 30, 36. So I started a family. So my wife and I, our needs changed. So we just recently built a home. But if we were in the rental group, we would say, okay, let's move out of an apartment. Let's just move into a nice house and let's yeah. just keep renting a nice house. So it makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because, you know, you and I both follow Grant Cardone and, and he's all about renting, not owning, you know, while you're, while you're on the come up and you're, you're trying mm-hmm. to grow. And, and there's, there's part of me that that's really appealing, but as a new home builder, I have to be, you know, I, I gotta be sold on my own product. And I, I you know, right, I, right, I, I yeah. believe, I believe there's still value in, in home ownership for sure. Um, but the well, idea of just renting a nice home- place with a, you know, with amenities and stuff is, is appealing sometimes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. There's the, um, anyone that was a homeowner over the past prior to let's call it September of 2019, they they've done well over the past two, 24 months, uh, from an appreciation and equity standpoint. Um, you know, we, we just finished building our home. We moved in in February of actually this year, we started construction on it in July of last year. So we, we locked everything in right up before the the linear price of lumber just went through the roof. So we were able to lock Mm -hmm. all our pricing in, um, but we're in a position now to where we've we've only, we haven't even been in the home a year, um, and we're we're in a strong equity position. And that you know we both are of the same school, right? Of uh, the Cardone school of rent while you're while you're coming up. But um, to your point, being in the industry, um, you, you kind of have to be sold on your own product. You're tell, telling other people to buy a home or build a home. Yep. And if, well, where do you live? Well, I live in this rental community over here. Well, why are you why are you telling yeah. me to, why are you telling me to uh, to purchase a home and build build a home from me? So, uh, so yeah, I completely understand. Yeah. Well, a couple of rapid fire fire questions here for you, Michael. Um, what is what is the best advice that you've received professionally? Best advice I've received professionally: um, trust your instinct. Nice. Who have you learned the most from throughout your career? It's interesting. I would, I, there's a couple of names or a couple of individuals that come, come to mind, um, depending upon the stage of which I was in my career. I think 
going back, coming full circle, um, it still sticks with me. I still kind of can see the, 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 uh, the conversation in my mind's eye, that very first conversation that I had with that individual that, that got me in the business because mm-hmm. of where he was, how he carried himself and who he was and the way he approached the things that stuck well with me. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You never know where someone is on the come up and on the ladder. He yep. was at the proverbial top of the ladder. I was at the bottom rung, but he treated me with the level of respect um, that is if I was his, his equal. And yeah. um, that got me into this business and has had a very successful career out of it. So yeah, I, I would say out of everything so far, that stuck with me the most. He, he's, he's been the most impactful. How did you, I want to go back to that for a second. How did you as an 18 year old kid have the, let's say the guts to go approach this guy who you see is clearly very successful doing well. What, it, what was it in you that said, I'm going to, I don't care how scared I, I assume you were scared. I don't know. I would have been. I think, I think there's some power and strength and naivete, right? <laughs> oh yeah. There's, you know, sometimes and I ha- like ha- we have a four-year-old daughter and, you know, I w- look at her and how, and I know you have kids as well, you know, so you can probably completely understand and relate to this. You look at how fearless they are mm-hmm. and how they're so inquisitive. And they want to know everything. And it's not until we either as parents or we as a society collectively say, oh, that's the wrong thing to do. That's the right thing to do. Temper, temper back your enthusiasm. Don't talk to strangers. Don't do this. Don't do that. I think in this case, Ben, I think it was pure just this guy looks successful. What do I have to lose? I'm just going to ask him. I'm going to go up and ask him. And I think it was just the fact of being naive. And I have to have to remind myself now to continue to have some, there's some power in naivete mm-hmm. um, of not being clueless or, or reckless, but in why not give it a shot? Yeah. Why, why am I overthinking this? Who cares what someone else thinks? Let me just give it a shot. And if I don't, if I'm not successful and if I, if I fail, I would rather look back and say, I at least gave it a try as opposed to what if, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, I think it's, you know, just purely being a, a knucklehead 17, 18, 18 year old. <laughs> That's great, man. I love it. Well, Michael, if you could go back to your very first day sitting in a, in a model home selling, selling real estate, what kind of advice would you give yourself? It's going to work out. Focus on the fundamentals, be yourself. You have two ears and one mouth, use them. Because I think the the biggest misconception in sales is that people with the gift of gab are going to be great at salespeople. Some of the best salespeople I've ever met are the term I'll call sleepers, right? You would never see them coming. They are, they are well-trained, well-polished. They know where they're going in the sales cycle and the sales funnel from A to Z, and they know how to get there. If they get deviated, they have a roadmap to get right back there, but they mm-hmm. are much more of an advisory or consultive type role than they are the t- traditional close, 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 got to sell, got to sell, got to sell role. Yeah. Um, so I, I think from that standpoint, if I was to tell myself, it would be one, it's all going to work out. Just believe in yourself, have faith in yourself, uh, learn your craft, to the point to where it is oozes from your being to where you don't have to think about the next thing you're going to say. It's already ingrained. So that way, if someone takes you on a completely different roadmap, you know, okay, how do we navigate and get back to where we're going? Um, Listen and be empathetic to the customer. Because in many cases, like what you and I do, this is the single largest decision that people make in their lives outside of having children and getting married. And yeah. so just be, just be empathetic. Yeah. This is how we make our livelihood, but the really where the livelihood, the sweet spot is the, the raving fan referral source for the many years to come. It's not just the transaction. It goes back to what we talked about with my wife about her being more relationship and strategic partner relationship. It's the same thing when you're working just with a consumer as a home buyer, being more of their ally, their advisor, their advocate. Now, and and, you know, of course, there's certain there's certain fiduciary licensing laws and all those types of things, but um, you can still be honest and ethical and work for their 
or their, uh, you know, to achieve their goal with still staying inside of the guidelines of, of what particular real estate or licensing body or board kind of says what your relationship is. There's, you can still be a, still, still be an ethical human being. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, Michael, thank you so much. I really have enjoyed this conversation. Where can people uh, go to learn more about you and, and TBG? Sure. Yeah. So I'm probably, I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, it's, it's at Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Braddock, B-R-A-D-D-O-C-K-I-I. Uh, that stands for the, I'm the second. So Michael okay. Braddock, I-I. Um, that's my Instagram handle. And then through there, um, you can link to the Braddock group or TBG. There's nothing posted on that yet. Uh, we plan to do a start to do a media, social media and overall PR blitz in the next 90 days. Uh, but that's at the Braddock group. Uh, on Instagram. And then I'm also uh, active on, on uh, LinkedIn, uh, just awesome. Michael Braddock. I, I, so, so yeah. And then our, our website, as I mentioned earlier, will be going live soon. It's braddock-group.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Pre- really appreciate it. Yeah, Ben, looking forward to uh, seeing you in person again real soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. I hope that you've learned something from our guest today. The Ben Beard Show is sponsored by Redcliffe Homes. The purpose of this podcast is to help young professionals find mentors in this crazy construction industry that we're in. If you have a story to tell about your road to a successful career in construction, I'd love to hear it. Please like and subscribe to the podcast to hear from all of our amazing guests. Join us on Facebook and Instagram at The Ben Beard Show.